Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Starting a media company used to be an expensive and bureaucratic endeavor. It usually required buckets of money, a team of lawyers, and even a CRTC license if you were looking to break into television or radio. But the internet brought down those barriers, giving new media companies a chance to challenge the old guard. And one company in particular, The Peak, is doing just that. The Peak was created to provide Canadian professionals with the news they need. They cover business, tech, and any other important stories of that day. It's a news site, but also a collection of newsletters and podcasts. And all of this is available at readthepeak.com. On this episode, we have The Peak co-founder and CEO, Brett Chang, stopping by to chat. Brett speaks with us about growing up in Toronto, his previous entrepreneurial ventures, working in public policy at Uber at a time when the legacy taxi industry was very hostile towards both Uber and its employees, and successfully starting a new media company in a very competitive ecosystem. So The Peak is a new Canadian media brand, and really what we're trying to do is make business news fast, fun, accessible, but most importantly, actually enjoyable to read and listen to. We've got our main publication, which is our daily newsletter that goes out to about 110,000 Canadians. We've got our daily podcast to complement it. We've now got a new podcast called Free Lunch, which is a bit longer form. We've got our personal finance-focused publication, Peak Money, and we've got a bunch of events that we put on too. But really what we're trying to do is make business news actually enjoyable to consume. Brett, I'm really looking forward to our chat today. Let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Uh, so I grew up in Etobicoke on the west end of Toronto, uh, born and raised there. Okay, so what part of Etobicoke? Because I live there right now, and I'm from Mississauga, basically Dixie and Lakeshore, and my dad's side of the family grew up here, so I'm very familiar with the neighborhood. Were you north, central, south? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably north, central, and so I was uh, I was right on the border between Mississauga and Etobicoke, right near Pearson Airport at Eglinton and Renforth, and so I, was, uh, I grew up right on the border there. What was life like growing up in uh, Etobicoke? You know, life was good. Uh, it's a uh, a good, normal, middle class Canadian neighborhood, uh, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I had a lot of fun as a kid. I, I had a great family, so yeah, everything was good. And you didn't move around. It was born and raised, and you stayed in Etobicoke, correct? Yep, stayed in Etobicoke until I was in my twenties. I went to university at the University of Toronto, and so I, I was commuting back and forth from school, and I was there for most of my life. I ask my guests all the time what their interests or hobbies were growing up, and I usually get, uh, you know, a mix of things, but this is quite the eclectic mix. I mean, we've got tennis, we've got snowboarding, politics, tech, and Chinese culture, all the different things you said. I want to pick some of these apart a little bit and delve a little bit deeper. My eyes go to politics, though, because a lot of young people will put their hands up and say that they were into some sort of sport, snowboarding, because we're in Canada. But what attracted you to politics at a young age? Because a lot of young people can find that, I mean, bland or boring. Yeah, well, I was an absolute loser. That's what it was, Victor. No other way to put it. Uh, no, you know, I, I I couldn't even tell you what it was. I think politics is always a topic that we talk about at my house. And I was really into the news. I, I thought the world was a pretty interesting place. And I was always intrigued by what was going on in different corners of it and trying to get a better understanding. And I think really, if you follow the news, politics is everywhere and it determines everything that's going on in the world. And so I got really interested in it in a young age. Uh and yeah, it was, it's a weird, it was a weird thing to get into as a kid. I, I you know, I remember there's a show called Crossfire on CNN. It was, everyone it was knows that Carlson. show. Yes. Yeah. Carlson Tucker Carlson's and... first foray into media and there's Ted Carlson, Paul Begala and a bunch of guys. And 
I would run home from school to watch the show, uh, which I think, yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure what that says about me, but it was a, it was a strange thing to get into. And I, I was really, really into politics then. So when Jon Stewart came on and pretty much destroyed the show, how did you feel about that? Do you hold a grudge? I was devastated and I've never been able to forgive him. I love that show so much. And I thought he was being, you know, as a kid, I thought he was being so unfair. And then now I look back on it and I think he made a lot of good points. But as a kid watching that show, uh, I was, yeah, I was, I was pretty offended by the whole thing. Well, is there anything that's kind of filled that void for you today? Like any contemporary political shows that you watch? You know, it's a good question. My, my politics have changed dramatically and, and uh, I, I still listen to political podcasts, but they're, uh, they're outside of the mainstream, but there's no, there's, I don't think there is. I'm not even sure you could have a show like that these days. Uh, I, I don't think it would do very well because the media's become so polarized. I don't think you could get two people that disagree like that in the same room consistently. Like, I think you could do a one-off, but I don't think you'd be able to, like you said, you know, have it happen on a daily because Crossfire was what, four or five days a week. Yeah, it was a lot. And yeah, I, I just don't, I think the media, it's just, everybody's picked a side now and there's not a lot of room in that middle. Uh, and I think they just found that there's no audience for it. People want one perspective or another perspective. And that's kind of where we've ended up. I had a professor back in 2002 who warned us. It was a communications class. He said, I'm sure all of you guys read only the things that reinforce your beliefs, only the things that you're attracted to. And he warned us that we'd get stuck in, in our own echo chambers and that it would create this sort of like polar. And we looked at that and said, no, we just want to listen to and watch what we what we like. But he couldn't have been more spot on. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I still feel that way today uh, in that I, by and large, read content that I agree with or, you know, or at least I'm not informed enough about to make an opinion. Uh, and then once I make an opinion, I probably sway back into things that I'm comfortable with. You also cite Chinese culture as being one of your interests or hobbies growing up. So what was it about Chinese culture? Is it safe to assume that you're Chinese Canadian? I am. Yeah, I'm half Chinese. This is another weird one. Again, I didn't have a lot of friends in school, Victor, is I think what we're trying to get to here. Uh, and so I was forced to kind of develop these these weird interests and in, in hobbies. And so, um, yeah, I, again, I was just kind of fascinated with the world and how it kind of worked and, and you know, all the different languages and cultures that make up the, the kind of collective mosaic. And yeah, I, you know, Chinese China was on the rise at the time and I was hearing a lot about it and I wanted to learn more about it. And, you know, I think I guess I wanted to get a, a connection back to my culture as well. And so, you know, I kind of went head first into the whole thing. And, you know, I started to learn, teach myself Cantonese and watch some of the shows and listen to the music and uh, and and just get a better understanding of what was going on in that part of the world, how those people thought, uh, how they worked, you know, where they saw their future. And I it was, I think, now uh, helpful and that I, I feel like I have a better understanding of a place that is obviously of growing importance in the world. But yeah, it was, again, I, you know, I had strange interests. Now that we talk about them, I realize how odd the whole thing was. Hey, I was one of the few people in my elementary school, even my high school that didn't do hockey. So I, I, I can empathize with that. I, I liked car racing and it wasn't something that you could actually do with your peers at recess. So I know exactly what it's like to have interests that aren't exactly in line with the mainstream growing up. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, you had to keep busy. And this is just how I kept busy. <laughs> three of uh, three of your influences. You cite Lee Kuan Yew, Bernie Sanders, and David Goggins. Did I say his last name right? Goggins? Goggins? Goggins, yeah, sure. David Goggins. So, okay, let's put Bernie Sanders off to the side because I'm pretty sure everyone knows who he is. But tell us about Lee Kuan Yew and why him? 
Yeah, Lee Kuan Yew is the founder of Modern Singapore. Uh, it's uh, He did something really incredible, which is Singapore was this backwater island uh, at the tip of Malaysia, and it was predominantly Chinese. And the Malays up and even till today have a very discriminatory attitude towards the Chinese population in Southeast Asia. And so there was a certain point where Malaysia kind of wanted to wash their hands of the Chinese in their country. And so they gave Singapore its independence. They let them loose. And Lee Kuan Yew from uh, the foundation of this new nation of Singapore, which was nothing, turned it into a thriving cosmopolitan, multicultural uh, economic hub. And the way he did that was really staying true to first principles of building a society, being innovative, being thoughtful about where he took the country strategically, and then employing a hell of a lot of leadership to keep people on side and to really make this thing the peaceful place it is today. You know, if you look back to Singapore and its origins, it was extremely divided. There were Chinese people and there were Indians and there were Malays and everybody hated each other and there was ethnic violence. And to create something which is much more cohesive and multicultural, I think is really important and inspiring. And, and just the fact that he made that his life's project and did it over you know, 10, 20, 30 years and really put that on himself I think is really inspirational and there's a lot that we can learn from that and doing the really hard things that can be applied to uh, a lot uh, else in, in the world. Let's go next to David Goggins. David Goggins is a new new inspiration for me. Look, I think uh, he wrote this book uh, that I think everyone should read and basically tells the story about how he had a really tough life. You know, he was abused as a kid uh, growing up in Buffalo, New York. You know, he didn't really have a lot of prospects available to him. He moved to a town that was flirting, always on flirting with white supremacy. And as an African-American kid in that town, he, he had a lot of a lot of trouble. He got into a lot of trouble. And, you know, he wanted to find a way out of that. And his way out was by enlisting in the U.S. military, ultimately passing Navy SEALs training and doing the Army Ranger program, which is the SEALs equivalent in the U.S. Army. And then he just kept on pushing. He became an ultra long distance runner and he uh, broke the record for the most pull-ups. And once again, I think what is really impressive and inspiring about him is how he just put his head down and got the job done. He knew that there is nobody else that was going to help him in American society. They really didn't want to look out for people like him. And and really only he was the one who had complete agency over his life. And he was going to push through whatever adversity was in front of him and accomplish what he wanted to accomplish and, and be something and make something of himself. And I think that discipline and that focus is pretty inspirational and, and another lesson that I'd like to apply to my life. And I think that everybody could could learn from. Well, I'm seeing parallels between them all because they were independent individuals who basically had a vision and ran with it. And you could say that too about Bernie Sanders, like in a, in a country where it's really only two parties, there's no room for a third, even though there really is a lot of room for a third. He's been pushing it as an independent, even though we could say, or to say an air quotes Democrat when it comes to running for president. But uh, yeah, why is Bernie Sanders on that list? You know, Bernie Sanders is by far and away my biggest inspiration in life. This is a man who has been, in my opinion, so consistently right over the course of his life, whether it was when he was getting arrested for opposing busing in Chicago of uh, African-American students, you know, he has always 
been on the right side of history and to hold some of those opinion, uh, positions that he's held, you know, whether it was marching in a pride parade in the 80s uh, or, you know, pushing for things like Medicare for all, which would make America, you know, genuinely more fair and a better place to live for so many people that the consistency around all of that is courage to hold these positions, uh, especially when, you know, in, in many cases, the culture and the general population were so opposed to them and his colleagues and his peers were so opposed to them, I think is so brave. And you can think whatever you want about him, but there is one thing that I think is truly consistent and undeniable about the guy. And that is a genuine belief that America needs to be better for working people, that there are lots of people who are struggling in America and around the world. And that there needs to be genuine systemic and institutional change to help these people. And he's been a longtime ally and spokesperson for them in a political culture that I think is far too often, far too often neglects these people and, and, and prioritizes other voices over them. So uh, Bernie Sanders by, by and large is my, is my number one inspiration in life. I, I hope to, you know, I hope to uh, at some point be able to contribute uh, even a you know five percent of what he has on the world uh, and and on America. Consistency is key. Someone I like to compare him to, just not in terms of political values or ideology, is um, former Congressman Dr. Ron Paul. And I think that's why a lot of people gravitate to, towards those two figures. Is that it's like you said, you go back ten, twenty years, you'll notice that everything that they were saying, I mean. Sometimes it comes to fruition, sometimes it doesn't, but they were consistent. You could play a tape of either one of them 15 years ago, and maybe the language changes a little bit, but they're both advocating for what they're advocating right now. And what I liked about Bernie Sanders was, and I have nothing against Secretary Hillary Clinton, but that message, he really stuck it to her. They were expecting her to steamroll the other candidates. Uh, what was it, six years ago? Yeah, about six years ago, or actually even longer than that, because primary season starts before yeah. the election. And he came out of nowhere and he just kept holding the line and being consistent. And I think what really angered me a little bit about that was after he was eventually pushed out, you remember that whole kind of come to Jesus moment where Obama called him and said, look, you don't have enough votes to carry the nomination. Please step out. It's, it's not working. You kind of hoped Hillary Clinton had picked up, would have picked up his talking points and she didn't. And then Trump did, didn't do anything that he would say follow through on for the so-called flyover states. And he kind of wrote those talking points to a win. Do you do you read any of the uh, readings by? I always mess up his last name, Matt Tiabi. Tiabi. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, I read him, and, and you have a good political memory about the uh, the, <laughs> the Obama I, calls after Super Tuesday. Yeah, because uh, I was following that. I I used to listen to the NPR politics podcast religiously because they they like the peak podcasts that are daily. These ones would come up usually every evening. And depending on what the story was of the day, it was either 10, 15, 20 minutes. So it was good to put on for workouts. So that's I remember that where they just called him the White House and was like, Bernie, can you please stop? And it's funny when the president has to <laughs> jump in and stop you. You know that you've got a lot of momentum politically when that's happening. But uh, yeah, no, I could go on about that forever. I, I do like a lot of the things that Bernie Sanders stands for. Part of that is because I don't know about you and, and uh, what your history was growing up with your parents or anything like that, but my parents, especially my dad's side, he was a union guy. Like he was in a union. He wasn't a union leader. So yeah. I kind of, I'm a beneficiary of that. I'm here right now because uh, my father who didn't graduate high school could get a good, you know, uh, a good job in a factory with benefits and provide for his family. And we've all benefited from that. So I have a lot of empathy uh, for people that are having that taken away from them. We're seeing that just kind of wrote over the years. But anyways, we're getting off topic a little bit, but we're on topic. 
Snow Patrol at Centennial Park. So did that feed your passion for snowboarding or your interest for snowboarding? Or did you get into snowboarding that way? You said, hey, you know what? I might as well sign up for this and maybe I can pick it up along the way. No, I, I got into snowboarding. I, I, I You'd be familiar with the area, but the Centennial Park Ski and Snowboard Hill uh, that was run by the city of Toronto was just down the street from the house I grew up in. And so it was just like an activity to do in the winter is to go there and and, and snowboard or ski. And so I, I picked it up when I was young and then, you know, I was looking for a job and they were paying minimum wage if you wanted to do the ski patrol. And I had friends of mine that had done the training. And so they, they kind of assured me that I could do it and I kind of just got into it. And uh, yeah, that was my my part time job for uh, for a while. One of the benefits had to have been and I'm making an assumption here, I guess, free lift tickets. Yeah, it was. But, you know, that's not saying much on that hill. Uh, no, it, it's not <laughs> a big hill at all. What would we classify it as halfway between a green and a, a bunny slope? Yeah, sort of. That, I, I think that's a good classification of it. You already mentioned that you went to the University of Toronto, but why study history? What attracted you to it? You know, I was just good at it, uh, and it was easy to me. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things in school that were really hard for me, uh, math and science. These were kind of disciplines that I had to learn from scratch, and I didn't have just a natural intuition towards them. And so I went with history because I, I was interested in history. You know, I liked reading about it on my own time, and I also found it pretty straightforward and easy, and so I had a higher confidence that I could do pretty well in it and, and get better marks. Whereas if I took something that was tougher, you know, I'm not sure I had the discipline or the attention span to actually learn something net new. And so that's kind of what drew me to, to history, in, in, in all honesty. Was there a specific facet of history that you concentrated on? Uh, I ended up kind of looking at uh, Canadian history and, and Chinese history, uh, but I think Canadian history is probably more of my focus. Uh, but yeah, I know. I just like I like Canada, uh, and I thought you know it was interesting to learn about the place that I, I kind of grew up in, and so I thought that was that was my that was where I, I spent most of my time. Did it also feed your uh, political interests as well? Because a lot of our history is intertwined with politics. Yeah, for sure. I you know, and that was another thing about it too, which is you know I did a double major in history and political science, and so I got some of the political science side uh, as well as the history. And yeah, look, you know, I can I can rationalize it. I was I am generally I'm I'm genuinely interested in these topics. But really, for me, it was an easy decision because it was what I thought I could do the best at and what I thought was the easiest. What you're doing right now at the peak, though, is you're doing a lot of storytelling, like you are bringing the news to the people in a, in a different way, in a great way, I'd like to say. But a lot of it is genuine storytelling. And do you think that that's what set you up for success in your degree is that you just like storytelling? And that's what history is if you boil it down to just what it is. Yeah, maybe. Like, I think the, the the interesting thing about the peak is, and we'll get into it. But I started at the peak with with two co-founders, and I thought we all had, you know, unique and and different skill sets that complemented each other really well. And and you know, definitely on the storytelling component and and overall writing ability, my co-founder Taylor is just one of the most talented writers I've ever met and best storytellers. And so he really kind of led the charge on that. Um, I, you know, I, I I can write the newsletter, but I, I definitely can't write it as good as Taylor, and I definitely can't write it as good as our editorial team now. And so I, I think that's that was part of it, and that I, I enjoyed the subject matter, and I and I, I liked learning the stories of our past. But yeah, I, I, I it's hard for me to draw a parallel there when I I, I wasn't as involved as I uh, in the in the in the editorial side as um, as my co-founder. After graduation, you found yourself working in politics dream job or was it just a job? Yeah, well, I worked in politics as an intern uh, at Queens Park in Toronto throughout my uh, throughout my undergrad career. And uh, I 
was graduating university and all my friends were going off to do things. They were getting into law school or they were going to do their graduate degrees. And I just really didn't know what I wanted to do. And so my default was that I would go into politics because I had a network there. I knew I could get a job if I wanted to. And I just didn't have any idea of, of what else I was even capable of doing. I wasn't even familiar with what options were available to me. So I just got in there for six months. Uh, I was joining at the worst possible time in the summertime. There was no legislature in session. And I just found it so boring. And I knew I had to get out and do something else. And your next job was in sales. What I'm in, welcome to the dark side. And you were an inside sales rep at Pivotal. Take us through what that was exactly. Yeah, it was not good. Um, I joined <laughs> okay. on to the, the point. Yeah, I joined on the first day, and then it was this company called Extreme Labs that I had originally gotten hired by, and they were doing mobile app development at the time when every company felt like they needed a, a mobile app, and primarily to enterprises, large corporations they were developing these apps for, and it was really the only tech company. And like you know, it's when I took a step back, I thought to myself. I wanted to get into tech. Now, in Toronto at the time, there were actually very few tech companies. And some of the only quote unquote tech companies were these agencies. It was people, engineers who were developing apps for other people and, and in particular mobile apps. And so I had a friend of mine who was working there and I thought this might be a good kind of bridge point to get into tech. And I just kind of hustled my way into it. You know, I, I learned the one thing I did learn in politics was how to go above and beyond and to hustle a bit to get things because you were knocking on doors, you were talking to people, you were always kind of looking for that that edge. And so I, I was calling around to the, the salespeople. I got an interview. I got a job. They, they you know, they didn't pay me a lot. I, I think I was on I was at the bottom of the totem pole in the company. And the first day I joined, they had gotten acquired by a larger American company called Pivotal. And I remember looking to the guy beside me who was actually very successful today. And, and he told me that that was I, I was excited by the prospect of that. And he told me it was a terrible thing. And he was right. And so. I was there for a year and just uh, on the phones and sending emails. And, and I, I met some great guys there uh, who are still friends of mine today. But we eventually got laid off in a year. And I also found the culture to be a bit toxic and not particularly productive. And so I wasn't too upset about leaving. So take us to your next role, because I believe it was entrepreneurial. Was it, if I've got it right, was it Line 6 or Adrenaline Digital? Yeah, so I left I left. Uh, I left uh, Pivotal and a friend of mine who I had worked with in politics was leaving his an agency that he worked for and he wanted to create a digital agency that would do uh, campaigns for private sector companies who wanted to interface with government. So if you wanted to influence politicians or staff on a certain issue or matter, then we would run a digital campaign around that, meaning that we do the website for you, we do the ads. And, and that's what he was doing at the agency before. And, and he was uh, an expert in that. I had developed some type of expertise in that as well, having just worked in politics. And that's what I found to be the most interesting in politics at the time. So I left, I, I joined up with him. We brought on another guy who's still my co-founder today, Taylor, and we got together and we started Adrenaline. And that was our first kind of foray into entrepreneurship. We did that for a bit. It wasn't a terrible business, wasn't a great business. Ultimately, we got into a bit of a dispute with our other co-founder. It's no no issue today. Uh, we just had different ways of working. And so that kind of fell apart. And then, and then we went into line six. Okay, so would you have considered yourself a lobbyist or were you more of an intermediary supporting the lobby groups? It was more of an intermediary role. I, I wasn't actually doing any direct lobbying. It was all kind of indirect. And line six, this is a, a big pivot away from media. So take us through uh, what that was, because you mentioned that the goal of this company was to speed up people's commutes. When you're someone like me who really doesn't have a ton of discernible skills, uh, you know, you're always on the verge of unemployment. And so uh, the only way to really advance, I found, was to 
continuously do different things. And the risks felt so minimal back then because the the stakes were so low that the worst case scenario was that I would move back to my parents' house, which I was, by the way, I just left. And so it wasn't a, a big concern for me. And so you kind of just start a million things and you see what clicks. Uh, myself and Taylor, we were riding the streetcar one day and we noticed that it was always packed in the morning on King Street and there was always a big line for people to, to get on. They had smaller streetcars at the time and they just couldn't meet the capacity of these growing communities like Liberty Village. And we saw there was a company in San Francisco that was doing and Boston that was doing these pop-up bus routes to help people get places and they were kind of building technology around it to make it easy for people to book tickets on it and you know have extras like coffee at the stops and whatever and so we thought we could do that from liberty village to union station and so we called around to some bus companies we booked a bus for a week we started to stand on street corners and hand out flyers in liberty village and you know then we saw uh, we got somebody was an AM640 radio producer. They wanted us to go on the radio. Other people heard that radio hit that we did. And we just got a ton of media around this thing. And so we ran it for a few weeks, which was really intense. Uh, and we got a ton of media. And uh, eventually we figured out two things, which is one, the economics were terrible. We just couldn't make the numbers work. And so two, we were young. So we didn't even know how to like raise money, even conceptually. Uh, and three, there was some... Uh, we were we were operating in very much a regulatory gray area, if not uh, a legal area, and so we uh, we decided to shut the whole thing down. This venture actually led to you landing at Uber. So you were in marketing there when you started at Uber. How new were they to the Canadian market? Like, were people aware of what Uber was and the problem that they were trying to solve, or was it still really in its infancy up here? Yeah, so they had just launched Uber in Toronto. So they were in the early stages of launching. They were talking to us when we were doing the bus because we were getting so much media and we were doing similar things that they started talking to me. And then when I wanted to move on from line six, I, I emailed the general manager, this guy named Ian Black, and uh, he uh, he hired me, gave me a job, took a chance on me. Uh, I remember my first week they were expanding to southwestern Ontario, so Kitchener, Waterloo, Hamilton, London, these places, and that was their big push. Um, but it was very new, and uh, it was exciting to be a part of something that early. I think Torontonians had just been trying, just learning about what Uber was trying to accomplish. They were still very much in a regulatory gray area, gray area although they had more certainty because there were certain legal decisions in the courts that uh, gave them greater license to operate. But yeah, it was it was very early. So when they were operating in that gray area, though, how did that impact your job as a marketing manager? Like, did you have to be cognizant of how you were positioning the company? Were you marketing primarily to new drivers, I guess, trying to get them on board? Because you can't really have an Uber fleet unless the drivers do sign up and no one's really going to get any sort of benefit from the service if they can't get an Uber. So who are you reaching out to and who are you speaking to primarily? Actually, were you even speaking to governments as well? First of all, uh, the biggest consequence that that the biggest impact that that had on my life was that there was a constant existential threat, which is I thought I was going to lose my job every week. And that was both a combination of the intensity of the Uber culture, but also this idea that we could be banned at any point. And so that was always looming. Um, but yeah, look, I, I, I was primarily focused on it because everybody was kind of focused on the policy side of things, even if you weren't on the policy team. And so I, I was sending out lots of these activation emails to riders and drivers, getting them to email their city councilors to tell them not to ban Uber. I was out there making marketing materials that we were handing out on the streets. And eventually we kind of became legal. There were bylaws that were passed in council 
that created a uh, a framework for ride sharing providers to operate. And I then moved on to new driver acquisition. So working through how do we get more people? It's a two-sided marketplace. So how do we get more people to drive on the platform to meet the growing demand? Was it stressful for you seeing the reaction from the taxi cab companies? Because one image or video that's kind of seared in my brain, it was during one of the big protests at Nathan Phillips Squares. And we're going back years and years and years ago. And one of the taxi drivers looks at, I think it's a Honda Civic or a Corolla, and he yells, that guy's an Uber, get him. And he hops on and he's actually holding onto the side view mirror and they drive about maybe 30 feet before he finally lets go. Like it was incredibly intense back then. Did that have any impact on your work? Very much so. I was at Mississauga City Council one day and we had lost a vote and myself and my colleague were the only two representatives of Uber there. And the whole council chamber was filled with taxi representatives and as I was leaving, they were making some comments towards my colleague, which I, I felt were pretty offensive. And so I, I began chirping back a bit. And then as I was leaving, I got punched in the back of my head. Oh, my uh, God. And so, you know, it, it had a lot of impact on me. I think we were very much on the front lines. We were getting police escorts out of different council chambers. It was it was uh, it was a pretty intense place to work at the time. You know, I I actually have a lot of empathy, much more empathy towards the taxi industry today than I had then. You know, I think I was young, I was naive, and I didn't fully realize what was going on at the time. And, you know, if I put myself in their shoes, you, you got, you know, whether or not the, the taxi industry was a broken system. You had these uh, plate holders, you had operators and dispatchers, and then you had the poor drivers who were at the bottom of the system being paid terrible wages and working in awful conditions. And they were not the problem. They never were the problem. And uh, I, I think that when I was young, I, I saw them as the problem, but that was naive and immature of me. And so I, I had no resentment towards them. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't love how the whole thing went down. You bring up the plate holders. A lot of people don't talk about them in that you'll see these license, the taxi actual license plates on the cars. And it's easy to think that they're owned by companies like Beck, but really it's individuals who made those investments years ago. And I remember having a spirited debate with someone about this because they thought, no, they've got to protect our investment. And I, I stopped and I said, hold up. I bought stock in this company. Is the government going to step in and guarantee that, you know, this doesn't dip below my principal? Like it's always going to experience some sort of level of growth. So I have a bit of empathy for them. But at the same time, it's like, hey, if you're going to make an investment, you have to know it can go one way or the other. And, and I don't think we should be putting policy in place to protect people's investments. I don't think that's that's in line with free market principles. That's for sure. Look, I absolutely agree. I think the plate holders should have been let go, but I, I do think that there could have been more done to help ease the transition for taxi drivers who had really bet a lot on this system into this new economy. I think that, by the way, that that can still be said today for Uber drivers, many of whom I'm sure were previous taxi drivers and have transitioned to this. I just don't think there's enough support generally for these people. And so you make it really tough on them. And, and this is the, the consequence that you get, which is social upheaval and discontent. It was funny. I actually had to, I actually had the opportunity to have like a one-on-one -on -one with a taxi cab driver about Uber. It was going back years ago. I want to say it was just as a lot of the tension was dissipating. And it was an older gentleman. And he said, what is so great about this Uber? Why would you rather hop, hop into someone's Honda Civic versus the Toyota Camry he had? He was a Beck driver. And I pulled up my phone and I said, look, it has absolutely nothing to do with you and the car. It has everything to do with convenience. And I showed him, I would go, this is how I summon a car. I can make all the payments for my phone. I can add a tip. 
I, you know, if I, I can see where the car is coming. I go, you guys can't offer that. I'm standing out at King and Bathurst, with my hand out, trying to grab a taxi. Or I'm watching someone take the taxi that I called because the taxi will pull up and say, did you call for a cab? And they'll say yes. And then they'll hop in and take off. And, and I, I told them, I go, look, you got to tell your bosses. It's not about sticking it to you guys. It's about them offering a certain level of convenience that you can't. And that's why I'm going in this direction. And I still see that today with the taxi cab companies is that I tried the Beck app years ago. I think this is when it was still in its infancy. And my God, you had to coordinate with the driver to pay. And the driver had to get on the phone with dispatch because it was having problems. And I sat there going, I tried. I tried giving you guys the benefit of the doubt. And no, and it pushed me back to Uber. It's it's uh, it's an interesting position for operators like Beck in that they just don't have the technological expertise. It's really hard to develop that quickly to uh, put together a competitor to Uber. And so that was always going to be a losing battle for them. But again, I, I look at that company in particular and I go, you had a lot of years of yes. effectively zero competition. And, you know, there is an there's an expiry date on every company and they kind of met their expiry date and the owners of that business did really well for themselves and built, you know, generational wealth. And uh, I, and so I don't have a ton of sympathy for them or the plateholders. I, I really only have sympathy for the drivers that were on the, the losing end of the argument. So you moved out of marketing into public policy, but then your foray with Uber also took you to Australia. So how did that opportunity come about? Were they doing some sort of internal exchange or did you just see an opportunity and push for it? Yeah, there was internal exchange. Uh, there was a program called Nomad where they would let you go to different places in the world if there was need for you. So if a team had asked that they wanted to bring you over, then you could go over. Um, you know, in my instance, uh, I, I, I kind of got lucky. Yeah, I struck a relationship with the Australia team when I was at a retreat with the company. I tried, they suggested that I, 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 I you know, I might go over there. I really liked that idea. You know, I liked Australian politics. And so we hit it off on that too. And then I, I kind of conned my way into going to Australia for a few months and it was nice and I worked and I hope that I contributed, but really for me, it was just a, a, a nice adventure to go to Australia for a few months, pretty risk-free. How was it working for uh, working for Uber in Australia versus Canada? Like how mature was the brand or at least the company in the Australian market? Did you have the same sort of, I guess, political challenges or social challenges? It was similar, but different. It was similar in that both in Canada and Australia at the time, there was effectively no competition. Uber was the only ride sharing player around. There was growing competition in the food delivery market, but on the ride sharing side, there was nothing. And so the contribution margins that these businesses could give back to the core business in San Francisco was crazy. It was hyper profitable. So that was really interesting. The politics were similar. Uh, there was probably more of an emphasis on labor in Australia at the time earlier than you saw it in Canada, which there still isn't too much of an emphasis on the labor side here. So that was probably a, a big difference between the two. But by and large, it was the same company doing the same same service and had the same same similar challenges. And so what brought you back? I guess your tenure was up. Yeah, my tenure was up. I guess I could have stayed if I wanted to, but I, I like Canada and I was happy to come back. Did you have any culture shock, though, when you landed in Australia, apart from the fact that they drive on the left hand side? Yeah, not much else. Uh, they talk kind of weird, but you can get <laughs> past that pretty quickly. And, you know, there were times I would be in downtown Sydney and I'd look around and it would feel like I was in maybe LA, like I was only a few hours away from home. That's how similar it felt. Uh, of course you are not, but it is, it's quite a similar place. You know, it's got, it's a beautiful country. They got great beaches, uh, which is really the the highlight of it. And I, I loved living there and it was so easy. It was truly the easiest place I could have asked for to, to live for a bit. Uh, but I was in the end, it's so far and so remote. That I think it's hard to live there unless you're from there. 
did you get into the local sport like Aussie rules football? Did you take up cricket? No, I was still watching hockey. Like I, I, I was only there. I was there for so few. I was, I was only there for a few months. And because of that, I just, you were in this weird place where you couldn't really make an effort to do more and to meet people and to get involved in different stuff because you knew that you were going to leave at a certain point. Uh, if I was there for a bit longer, I might've gotten more involved, but it was that weird three month period that made it tough. What about the working culture at Uber Australia versus Toronto? Was it far more fast paced? Was it a lot more relaxed? Did you see any sort of like cultural differences in that way? It was pretty similar to me. Uber did a really good job at hiring the same type of person around the world, which was ex-management consultants that wanted to transition into tech. And so the working culture was very similar no matter where you went. I'm sure people would, I, probably the biggest observation, the biggest difference, and this is probably true not just for Uber, but for any any company between Australia and probably the UK and here is that they just have more of a drinking culture. Uh, and so <laughs> they're going, they're going out after work all the time. They're having a big blast on Fridays before the weekend. And we just don't have that way. Friday uh, at Uber Canada, you know, everyone kind of goes home and then, you know, maybe they'll then go out after that, but there's no work into play. There's a gap that, in between there. And so that I thought was kind of interesting. After departing Uber, you jumped into the cannabis industry as an investor. So what attracted you to the industry overall? Was it because it was fresh, new, a lot of money was coming in, a lot of opportunity for growth in a number of directions? Basically, uh, that was, I was, again, very naive about the whole thing. I just didn't know a lot about business. I was kind of learning about business as I, you know, I learned about operations at Uber. I didn't really know anything about investing. What happened was that we didn't know about politics. And so when Justin Trudeau won, we looked at the platform and we we're like, what's the one opportunity here in business that we could identify early? And cannabis was it. Canada, he had promised he was going to legalize cannabis and all indicators pointed to the fact that he was going to do that. And so I got out there and and we thought to ourselves, you know, how can we get involved in this industry? And so we started hosting monthly meetups in Toronto where we would just get different players together, whether it was the big companies like Canopy and Afria or entrepreneurs that wanted to get involved in the space. They'd come out to our meetups and they would hear from experts in the field. And we grew those meetups. We grew those meetups pretty quickly. You know, at the height of it, we were getting hundreds of people at these monthly events. There was so much interest in it. There were so many people that were moving into the industry. It was a really exciting place to be. We wanted to capture some of the upside of that. So we thought, let's go raise a fund. That was a great idea in 2017, a sequentially a terrible idea every year after that. And so the, the whole thing was kind of a, a bust. But you know, I thought we had an interesting idea, which is that we would find early stage companies. We would put them through an accelerator program. We would offer them some capital as well, help them grow and start their businesses. And then we'd be able to do follow on investing as they got bigger. But I think we just miss under we just underestimated how few opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities there could be in such a highly regulated space. Were you focusing more on, say, the retailers or on the I guess you could say the growers or the manufacturers? Not the growers of the manufacturers. At the time, the big thing was brand. Like I, there was a lot of interest in how do you create a white label brand that you put on these different products and can you build that brand? But the regulations were so strict in the end that there was really no way to do that. And even today, if you walk into you know, a dispensary, it is impossible to differentiate product. There's no advertising. You can't talk about the product. And so you really just have to rely on the bud tender to kind of guide you, or you have a personal preference of a product that you've tried before and liked. Did anything change for you when Doug Ford, I think it was one year after it had been legalized, did away with, or he didn't do away with it, but he did away with what was it, the dispensary or the retail licenses? Like you could, it was the lottery he did away with, if I remember correctly. 
and you could still get a retail license. You just had to apply for it and do the paperwork. There wasn't an element of luck. At that point, we were long gone from the whole thing. It just didn't, it didn't make sense anymore. It's kind of like the taxi licenses. Cause I, I'd known one individual who actually won that lottery. And I think he's got a very, very, very strong business that he's built, but I have to imagine it would have been easier for him and far less paperwork and fewer lawyer fees or legal fees if he didn't have to go through the whole lottery process and maybe waited it out another year, a year or two. Probably diluted the value of the license as well. Cause I know that people were winning those licenses and like the taxi ones, they were just letting, they were just leasing them out to other people for retail operations. Yeah, those were, those were crazy times and unsustainable. You know, you're looking today and it's really hard to be a dispensary operator in places like Toronto. There's so much competition and the demand is far less than people had expected. Well, I can tell you during the pandemic in Etobicoke, where I am, which is basically like Queensway and Islington, Queensway and Kipling, yeah. a lot of them opened up in the last year and a half. And I've been saying to my wife, I wonder how many of them are going to be around a year from now, especially yeah. with the way the economy is going. I'm sure not many. Okay. So Brett, this brings us full circle. Let's go back to the peak. So first and foremost, where did the idea come from? Yeah. So the idea came from about two and a half years ago, you know, it was the pandemic and uh me and my two co-founders we were kind of looking around after we had done lean forward trying to figure out what to do next and the one thing that we noticed is that a lot of our friends and colleagues and family were reading publications like these newsletters in the us morning brew the hustle and the scam and we just couldn't find at that time anybody who was creating content in that same format and tone and voice so we thought let's make a go at it we listened to every podcast that the founders of those publications did and we tried to put together a playbook through learning from them that we could recreate in Canada. And fortunately, we thought that we all had uh, the skills to kind of make this work. Taylor was good at the writing and the technical stuff. I think Alex and I are good at operations and sales. And so we, we could kind of put the whole package together. And then we created a bunch of assumptions as to uh, if we could actually turn this into a business, which is, you know, can we create a good product? Do people want to read the product? Will people consistently read the product? Can we acquire new people, uh, new readers effectively? Uh, can we sell ads and all of that? And as we kind of went through those assumptions and began to validate them, we had increasing confidence in the business. What does the typical workday look like for someone at the peak? And I, I asked this question simply because a lot of your content is delivered early in the morning. So I have to imagine that because I think I get your, I get the peak daily. I think I get your newsletter, I think at about 6.15 in the morning. And so that has to have been curated and created hours before that. So do you guys typically start the night before for the day? So your day might end a little bit earlier than everyone else's, maybe mid-afternoon, but you're getting ready to start again, maybe eight hours later? We usually write the newsletter the day before. I think what we take a lot of pride in is our operational excellence. What we try to do is create better content, more content, cheaper, faster than everybody else. And uh, and so we put a lot of rigor to a process to create this product every day. And, and that includes our editorial team doing story selection, deciding which stories we're going to include in the newsletter, assigning those stories, creating drafts, having edits in, uh, putting that, uploading that into the actual email sending provider and schedule and sending out a test and scheduling it. And all of that is kind of documented on a dashboard of ours. We track everything. And uh, and so, yeah, we put a lot of rigor around that process to make sure that we can do that because you're right, there's a lot of content and we really don't want people working outside the hours of nine to five. And so we try to keep it as tight as possible. What about the podcasts? Because you've got the peak daily and then you've got free lunch. When are you guys typically recording those? Because those go live pretty early in the day as well, too. Yeah, the peak daily is recorded around 3 to 3.30, and 
what we usually do is repurpose the newsletter stories and just kind of make it a bit more conversational. And then Jay and I will get together and record it. Uh, free lunch is recorded on a weekly basis. And so Taylor and Sarah will kind of go through prospective guests, do the outreach to them, schedule them. We might do two a week, we might do three a week, we might do one a week, but we try to keep it on that weekly cadence. And so that we get recorded, we have it edited, and then we put it out. How has the peak been received by, I guess you could sort of say, your mainstream competitors like like Torstar Digital or Post Media or Globe and Mail? Have you guys had any responses from them? Because I know that you guys do have a partnership with Oh, I always want to say City TV, but no, I mean Global course. TV. We're, yeah. we're, with Chorus, where you're, you, we actually can see you uh, jumping into uh, content or doing a bit of a brief during the lunch hour. But how have you been received by the others? Do they kind of treat you guys like, oh, this, this startup, they don't know what they're getting into right now? Or do they see you as competition and you find that, you know, maybe there's a bit of tension between the companies? Because even Coke and Pepsi, because they own the cola market, they don't want to see a third party coming in. Yeah, I don't even think we're on their radar. Uh, I don't think they think about us. I don't think they talk about us. I think we are just off their radar entirely and, and absent in their minds. Um, and that's okay. I, I think we're doing our own thing. I think we see a, a pretty good path for us to become a really big media brand in Canada. And, and we're excited about that prospect, but I don't have a lot of correspondence with them about it. On the chorus side, they saw our first podcast, The Peak Daily. They liked the podcast. They wanted us to join their podcast network. And then alongside that, they can kind of ha- carry uh, different opportunities for us, including the ra- the one minute radio version of our podcast that goes on talk radio across the country. They uh, we do a weekly global news segment with Ann Gaviola that I, I co-host, and we record that every Friday, and that airs throughout the weekend. So we have a bunch of neat opportunities through Chorus, but I think that by and large, the legacy mainstream media outlets don't even think about us, or uh, you know, they're maybe aware of us in some instances, but they don't see us as a uh, as a threat. I might be asking to take a peek into the future, and if you got to keep your cards close to your chest, that's okay. But what would, if we could call this version 1.0 of the peak, or maybe version 2.0, because it started as the newsletter and it's grown so much, but what would the next iteration of the the brand look like? I think the Canadian media landscape is really exciting right now. Uh, Whether or not they want to see us as a competitor, uh, I really think we are a real competitor, especially to what I believe is the best-run publication in Canada, the Globe and Mail, where there is a certain point where I believe that media buyers will begin to think whether or not they should allocate funds towards a declining publication like the Globe and Mail or an ascending one like us. And that's where I really see the opportunity. And to do that, there's three primary components, which is we need to continue to grow our audience. And I think we're getting really good at that. We have a great growth team that is top tier in terms of paid acquisition through social paid social channels. We're building out really good processes around video, creating really great video content that I think is going to do really well and get our content in front of more Canadians. Then we need to create really top tier editorial content which is our newsletter and our podcast. And I think we're really honing that process down. Like I said, creating more content, cheaper, faster, better than everyone else. And, and then it's sales. It's taking all of that content that we're producing and that that scaled audience that we have and and selling to media buyers and brands and demonstrating the impact that getting uh, your brand story in front of our high value audience of hundreds of thousands of modern Canadian business leaders can have. And that I think if we execute on each one of those 
uh, prongs in that three prong process, I really do believe that we're going to become one of the most recognizable media brands in Canada. The key is avoiding the one mistake that every other media company in Canada makes, which is getting distracted. You know, we're really good at creating content for modern business leaders. That's what we're focused on. And if we ever stray from that, that's when we start to lose. And so just staying hyper-focused on that, focusing on those three prongs, simple business. And I think that over the course of time, we're going to be really one of the most recognizable media brands in the country. Well, I know some of the listeners to this podcast definitely subscribe to The Peak, but let's say there's someone here that's hearing about you guys for the first time. Where can they find you on the web? You can find our newsletter at readthepeak.com. You can find our newsletter or our podcast, everything there, and you can find us on social channels. We're usually Read the Peak as the handle. Brett, this has been wonderful. Thanks for stopping by. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Sure, let's do it. The campaign you are most proud of? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, we did a really interesting campaign with Capital One to help educate our readers on personal finance tips, especially when it comes to using credit. And we put that in our Peak Money campaign. That was the campaign, our Peak Money newsletter. That was the campaign that we launched with. And I thought it was great. And uh, both our teams did a really good job executing it. Your favorite movie? My favorite movie is Parasite. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? That's a great question. Uh, I, you know, I've thought about this. I would say the Harry Goldring from Crazy Rich Asians. Did you see him in The Gentleman by any chance, the Guy Ritchie film? No, I didn't. Check that out because he plays quite the gangster in it. And have you heard that he's also, uh, he, his name's being thrown around as the next James Bond? I saw that, yeah. That's, that's cool. So my follow-up to that question, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? I would call it Try, Try, Try. Your favorite book? My favorite book is Say Nothing. Uh which is a really interesting oral history of the Troubles in Ireland uh, by Patrick Radden Keefe. Your favorite song? My favorite song is Alaska by Maggie Rogers. The best advice you have ever received? Is to just keep on trying things and you'll always end up in a better place if you had tried something than if you hadn't. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Yeah, I'd probably just be in tech doing operations. Brett, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.